0: Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Hey, Franz Dans. I cannot believe this is the fourth episode since the war. All I could think of when the war started was I want this to be over quickly so we could just go back to our lives as we know it, even though that's impossible. But those were the natural feelings that I was yearning for. Now it's more of an acceptance of a new reality, understanding life is never going to be the same. I'd also like to invite you to listen to some incredible episodes that were released on Orthodox Conundrum, as well as Intimate Judaism, all part of jewishcoffeehouse.com. Okay, here are just some of the titles from the last few weeks. While Israel Slept, Questions, Puzzles, Issues, and Options, related to the war in Gaza with Yaakov Katz. Another one, God wants us to fight evil. Thinking about the war through the lens of Jewish law and thought with Rav Yoni Rosenzweig. Next we have, I'm so proud of the Jewish people and other thoughts, living life while Israel is at war. Bonus episode, the catastrophic success of Hamas and Israel's massive response, a deeper look at Israel's war against Hamas with Dr. Matthew Levitt. And there are more episodes, so definitely check them out. I write songs when things happen. Anything happens in my life, I write a song. So two days after Yantif, on the 11th of October, I wrote the song. I invited other female vocalists to participate, and it came out last week. Feel free to listen to it. I'll link it in the show notes. Kolisha, I hope it Brings unity, strength, and hope, some of that positive energy that we need. We are launching a campaign together with Israel Forever to encourage Jews all over the world to wear blue and white and sing a Jewish song. You could also sing the We Are One song that I released last week, video yourself singing it, and I'll show you where you can submit it. You can also share it on your social media. But the idea is, as we come to the Shloshim, which is the formal end of the first or the second mourning period as a family, as a nation, we have to lift ourselves up. We have to unite. We need to find that positive energy in our unity. Many of us are struggling to feel proud outside of Israel, being public about being Jewish, standing with Israel. So this is a call for us to feel more united, both online and personally, by joining in this initiative. If you'd like more information, don't hesitate to reach out. One more thing I wanted to add. As I am noticing shifts and differences in how we feel as Jews, we're living in an age where truth and the not-truth is completely mixed up. And what primed this specifically is the woke society where men can be women, women can be men. And I'm sorry if I'm being very blunt. In a world where anyone could just be anything, then Israel can definitely be blamed for what happened to them. And the word I've heard over the last week was we are being gaslit. We're being told we're seeing things the wrong way. We're the bad guys. Israel's horrible. We're colonizers, oppressors. I just feel like I can't even speak. How are you supposed to talk with people who are getting completely different information, believe completely opposite things of what we're believing? And we're living in a world where just everything feels upside down. And it's really draining me mentally because it feels like we are I'm in a new reality. Everything I thought I knew isn't what I think it is. So confusing. Who knows what's gonna happen in the next 20 years because the next generation is... Heavily influenced toward the Palestinian side and being very anti Semitic. Where's the hope? So, these are just some thoughts that I'm grappling with. I don't have any answers. I just know I feel now I have to connect myself back to my roots and focus on what's actually important, what's really essential to us as Jews. We do know now that by having a Jewish state, an Israeli state, Jews all over the world are safer. And we are in a different position than we were pre-Holocaust. So there is hope. Before I introduce our guest, I'd like to thank Dr. Jessica Roda for connecting us. I actually interviewed Jessica on an episode called The Analysis on the Female From Arts Industry. And I'd like to go ahead and introduce our guest for today, Professor Bruce Hoffman, An American political analyst, he specializes in the study of terrorism, counterterrorism, insurgency, and counterinsurgency. Hoffman serves as the Shelby Cullum and Catherine Davis Senior Fellow for Counterterrorism and Homeland Security on the Council of Foreign Relations and is a professor at the School of Foreign Service of Georgetown University, where he directs its Center of Jewish Civilization, in addition, he's the Professor Emeritus and Honorary Professor of Terrorism Studies at the University of St. Andrews and is the George Gilmore Senior Fellow at the U.S. Military Academy's Combating Terrorism Center. Hoffman began an interest in the study of international relations while an undergraduate at Connecticut College. He received his graduate education at the Oxford University, earning his doctorate in 1986, Hoffman has since held multiple professorships and appointments. In May 2022, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin appointed Hoffman as a Commissioner of the Commonwealth of Virginia's Commission to combat anti-Semitism. He's also a frequent writer for The Atlantic and the author of Inside Terrorism, as well as many other published works. Enjoy this short episode. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Professor Bruce Hoffman. Thank you. So as an expert in terrorism and terrorist groups, can you tell the average person or the average Jewish person, what is it that we don't know that you have learned about our enemy right now?
1: Well, perhaps at the risk of of stating the obvious, I think that... The conflict we're seeing in Israel and Gaza goes far beyond that area of the world or even the region. I think that this really is an assault as well on our Western democratic liberal values. I don't mean liberal liberal politically. I mean that the things that animate governments in the West, I mean, democracy protections of minorities so that there's not tyranny of, of, of the, the majority, our belief in peace, our desire to avoid conflict and to engage in change to the greatest extent possible through electoral proceeds and non-violent means and in my view all that's being shattered by the events of october 7th that this these were attacks that weren't only directed against israel and even against jews throughout the world but against i think the united states certainly the countries that have signaled their un- unqualified support for Israel in the days afterwards, the United Kingdom, France, uh, Germany, and Italy. And this is really a watershed moment. I mean, the pr- President Biden called it an inflection point. And I, I agree that he's right. This is a much bigger struggle. And you can see it in that virtually every single Salafi jihadi terrorist group, that's to say Al-Qaeda and ISIS and their uh, franchises and branches, all... All of these Shia militias in Iraq and Syria, even the Muslim Brotherhood, which is always put on a facade of nonviolence, has rushed to the support of Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad and made common cause with their goals and have indeed supported their you know, the horrific events of October 7th. So I think the big lesson is that terrorism never remains local. The threat often Migrates to a regional and even an international one. And we're at a very, I think, important time. That this is, it's too easy to d- dismiss terrorism as something that's sporadic or that occurs infrequently, may only occur on the border between Israel and the Gaza Strip. I mean, this is what we've seen in the past two plus weeks is something very different on so many levels.
0: Are you surprised at how the West, or at least the media, and some of the elite campuses in the West have been siding and it's not so clear to them that they're siding with terrorism. Or do you disagree with my statement to begin with?
1: No, I don't disagree Are with it you, at all.
0: Because a professor told me they're just ignorant. I'm like, really? The smartest people in our countries, <laughs> the faculty and the students, they're just ignorant? They, they skipped one history class?
1: Within, you know, I think it's demonstrated, you know, within Moments of the explosion at the hospital in Gaza last week, everybody rushed to blame Israel, and immediately swallowed Hamas's propaganda that 500 people had died. I mean, how would they know that in the minutes after an attack? I mean, that's that's I think a perfect example. Some of the language that's used, "This is a genocide." The Jewish people and the Armenian people and others have plenty of experience tragically of genocides. This is not a genocide, but. Uh, Gaza is an open air concentration camp, for example. I mean, things that have become just so commonly used that they have acquired a veracity divorced from reality. So in that sense, no, I'm not surprised, but the one thing that I'm very disappointed in is I think from those persons' perspectives, I can understand showing solidarity with the Palestinians, harvesting their, you know, their, their litany of of apartheid state and occupation and colonizers and, and 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 so on i understand that but what really has stunned me is just the total lack it seems of sympathy or empathy with the victims the fact that jews were targeted that people can be so callous that you can have groups that have logo that had they've taken them down because they realized how tasteless they were but logos of a paraglider it's just terrific and indeed a lot of the apologists for the terrorists. That has surprised me. Uh, Hamas has said so, and now so many people repeat this blaming of the victim that Hamas really didn't plan this, that uh, Israel was so woefully unprepared that things just ran amok. That is such complete nonsense. I mean, you don't, apart from the information that now is being found on the dead terrorists that show very detailed plans, even down to the minute of when guards were. There's a changing of the guard at Kibbutzim or Moshevim, I mean, this type of thing that shows it was premeditated. But it's just this prima facie obvious. I mean, when 260 persons are slaughtered at a music festival that had been widely advertised, when the terrorists arrive on paragliders and then in pickup trucks and SUVs and set up a kill box on three sides of a rectangle to drive the, the partygoers or the festival goers into an ambush, I mean, this is not an attack that's gone amok. It wasn't an attack directed just against IDF facilities. It was cold-blooded murder was planned from the outset. But so many people are blinded by that and are ignoring that. And frankly, I have to say, once again in history, the Jews are blamed for their own misfortunes, and this is nothing new.
0: Have you seen any faculties or campuses addressed this the right way, not, not after the fact you know, crafted statements to sort of cover what they've allowed on campus?
1: Certainly, the, the most egregious examples of this have already been completely amplified at Harvard, at Stanford, at the University of Pennsylvania, at Cornell, NYU, I mean, some of the elite universities of the country. We live in an imperfect world. I think, though, Bearing that in mind, there are universities, like the one I work at, Georgetown, that has tried to strike a balance and introduce some sobriety and, and certainly forthright concern for the victims of this tragedy, and in fact, have used the word terrorism. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems we face, is no one uses the word terrorism anymore. I mean, the New York Times last week had an excellent timeline of the attacks on October 7th except for the fact that they describe the quote-unquote Hamas commandos who attacked the music festival. If you're attacking a music festival, you're not a commando. That's giving them a legitimacy or endowing them with the properties of soldiers who at least conform to the rules of war. When they don't, it's called a war crime. Um, but calling them commandos is wrong. Uh, I think now other universities... Are indeed. I've seen this just in the past few days. Are organizing their own events to get their own points across. Um, but even when there is, let's say, I mean, the best we can hope for is a two-sided or a two-perspective discussion. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily creating sympathy or changing people's minds.
0: I would like to hear from you personally what it was like to travel and interview terrorists face to face. And talk to them like human beings, which biologically they are, especially you being a Jew.
1: Well, I think in my career, I've I've spoken to well over hundred terrorists. I don't interview them and publish my results because I think once you're sitting there and recording or writing, they're not going to be frank, and they're not going to be honest. And I wanted to get inside their mindset so far as that's possible. And I've interviewed them all over the world and Palestinians, uh, Tamil Tigers, Irish terrorists in Northern Ireland, for example, and and Basques, Colombian Fork, and so on. What struck me in the past, and this was in the first edition of my book, Inside Terrorism, which was first published in 1998, I wrote this. uh, What struck me is that how normal they are, that they're everyday people. and That's, in fact, nearly 50 years ago what brought me into the study of terrorism. Was that I wondered why people my age were choosing a di- completely different direction, were going, were going into violence and could justify killing and harming innocent people. So I, I always believed that. And the theme of terrorism studies, I would say until ISIS, but maybe before, was that terrorists were rational, that they use violence as a means to an end. And I'll never forget that. It must have been in the mid-2000s. I was lecturing in Colombia, which is a country that's had a lot of terrorism. And I made that point. And some of the police in the audience got very upset with me and challenged me and said, look, our comrades who've been captured have been subjected to just horrible deprivations, just depraved acts of violence. We don't think they're rational. And I still think they are rational. I mean, ISIS was very rational in its horrific crimes against the Yazidi people, the Chaldeans, the Shia. Obviously, if they could get their hands on people of other religions as well. But there is a, there's always a rationality, and even in, and it, it, it may not be one we understand, and it certainly is a malevolent and a homicidal one. But terrorists don't do things senselessly, and actually, that's what makes October seventh so enormously frightening and scary, and why I started by saying this is just an all-out assault on Western values. When you can engage in that sort of savagery and butchery, and I don't have to recount it because I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with it. We've read about it for the past 17 days. A line's been crossed, and I think that's what the world has to understand. And That's why I make the point this isn't just about Israel and the Jews and the Palestinians.
0: Have you been scared for your safety? Can you take us through what it was like?
1: Well, that, that's, that's a very good question. You go
0: and I would ask the same questions to someone who is 8 non-Christian, non-Jewish, non-Hindu. But as a Jew, it must be even, you know, they probably assume you you are there to get them or catch them in something.
1: Not necessarily at the time. Uh, my surname is can be ambiguous enough. I mean, it, it is a typical Jewish name, but it's also a very dramatic name. And depending how you spell it, it can be Jewish or not Jewish. I mean, certainly in recent years, because I was director of the Center for Jewish Civilization and I've written extensively on Israel. People I think would know I was Jewish, but let's say when I was doing this in the 1980s and the 1990s in particular, even into the 2000s, I'm not sure that was an issue or I certainly didn't bring it up. And it, yeah, there were times that, that were quite dangerous. And I think I was quite stupid. There were other times though, where I interviewed terrorists who were incarcerated. Or had been captured. And then it was safe. Generally, terrorism experts fall into two categories. There are those who sympathize more with the government position and may have even, like myself, have worked in government. But a lot of these interviews were done before I really worked in government, although one of them was while I was working in government. But no one would have known that at the time. Or there are those who are sympathetic to the terrorists and are able to have all kinds of access because the terrorists are confident that they're going to act as ciphers for the terrorists and for their cause. So I've always been on the government side. So I've had opportunities to interview terrorists in prison, but not exclusively. It's sometimes in in dangerous situations.
0: Can you illustrate a dangerous situation?
1: Uh, Sure. Well... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I've written about this. It's been published in the Atlantic Monthly in uh, 1998. I, uh, when the Palestine Authority was in charge of Gaza, I went into Gaza. But it wasn't it wasn't hard to cross it to Gaza. Then I mean, this was when the promise of the Oslo Accords was in full flower. But you know, you're still going into a place where you know not only is the Palestine Authority was in charge. But Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad were active. And I was interviewing someone who was a senior official who had been in Fatah. But just the transiting through Gaza, I'd been to Gaza many times when I had lived in Israel in 1979 and 1980 because I had a friend who worked in the United Nations. And I'd walked around the streets then. I mean, it was a different world, but that was very much, um, I mean, even though. There were Israeli military forces there and Israeli settlements in Gaza at that time. You didn't see any of them, really. I mean, I was walking around Gaza City, admittedly, with someone from the United Nations, but I'm not sure that that mattered. Certainly, when I did uh, field work in Sri Lanka was was by far the most dangerous because I went deep into parts of the country that were controlled by the Tamil Tigers at the time. And any interview Tamil Tigers, uh, you know, they didn't have a... Uh, whether I was Jewish or not didn't really matter to them. But being American could be a disadvantage because they they viewed the US as a status quo power, always supporting whatever government was in office. So they saw the US as an enemy because it supported Sri Lanka government. But it was more the random type of violence, not necessarily targeted violence as much that you could be in the wrong place at the wrong time and someone might not have gotten the message that you're you know, an academic or a researcher and think that, well, and in fact, in Sri Lanka, I was front page news in 2003 because terrorists there had gotten wind that I was in Sri Lanka doing research on suicide terrorism, actually, to counter, of course, in the midst of the second intifada when we were very worried about suicide terrorism coming to the United States. But they basically accused me of being a CIA agent and intelligence operative. And the president of, of Sri Lanka at the time, the, the prime minister rather of Sri Sri Lanka at the time declared me persona non grata, but I wasn't even there. It was just a, it was just a disinformation campaign. So they, they definitely noticed and I haven't been back since.
0: Do you have any insight to? You know, as you said, it's they're attacking the West, the Western values, but at the same time, they are counting on Western media, Western journalists to represent them as the victim. So the question is, why is it so unclear to the world that they're using the West to infiltrate it and then destroy it? Because that's what their ultimate goal is.
1: Well perhaps why, why do you have
0: people who are queer standing for Hamas that's my question <laughs> because if Hamas would just see them they would execute them just-
1: Yeah abs- absolutely well I think it's 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 very misguided it's I think a proclivity to support the underdog and you know there was an era in Israel's existence especially its first decades when there was much more popular support for Israel because it was seen as the underdog. But progressively, I think since the nineteen sixty-seven Six-Day War, and once, you know, Israel had had captured the West Bank and Gaza Strip, that dynamic changed. And over the years it's ossified. Because we have all these these, you know, odious comparisons to Israel, these Nazis and calling Gaza Strip an open air concentration camp and using terms that have been so directed terms of violence that have been so directed against the jews like 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 genocide and applying it to other peoples who i'm not contesting maybe suffering but that's a very sloppy use of the language but it serves the purpose of dehumanizing israelis and jews i mean until i would say until october 7th there was amongst you know very left communities and and other people, uh, this fiction that anti-Semitism was not—I'm sorry, anti-Zionism was not anti-Semitism—that's over. That's it. Because of course, the Israelis who were killed on the Gaza border were not settlers. For instance, in the West Bank, uh, these were uh, in some cases too. They were quite liberal and quite left themselves, it, and it didn't matter. All that mattered is that you were Jewish, and I think. That's what tr- that's what troubles me the most is that anti-Semitism is so on the rise that I feel like my grandparents did in the 1930s, living in New York, and my my grandfather was one of these Jews who was out in Yorkville brawling with the Nazis. Yorkville was the, the German section of the Upper East Side of New York. Now it's a very Tony place, but back then it was very heavily German, who felt very threatened as well, and it was that there was no break on anti-Semitism. And I, I think, unfortunately, we've returned to that that same kind of era, where anti-Semitism is, as as we as, as your question suggests, is now trafficked in in a very promiscuous way once more.
0: They're hiding under a new term, but it's also anti democracy, anti Western world. Well, of
1: course, yeah, and that, that's what perplexes me. Hamas has not held elections since 2007 neither is the palestine authority they're not exactly paragons of popular representation hamas very cruelly and very cynically uses its population as pawns in its struggle i mean this is why the idf is so challenged in operating in, in gaza because all the hamas positions are in you know deeply enmeshed with civilian life there Somehow that's that's completely drowned out and attention is never drawn to it.
0: So what do you predict or at least hope for regarding change and shifting ideology in the Western world to better fight the jihadists?
1: On the one hand, it's hard to be optimistic that people can't see right for wrong from what happened on October seventh to me just defies the imagination. So it's gonna be very hard to persuade people to change their minds on campuses or whatever. I think we have to do the best that we can and we can make progress. But when I think of what the future holds, the shred of optimism I have is that it took a terrible tragedy, like the Yom Kippur War, that also it started on October 7th and also on a Jewish holiday, although more sacred one, the most sacred one. Caught Israel by surprise. We think that that until October 7th was the largest number of Jews that had died on a single day since the Holocaust. And that was 317. And most of them were soldiers. You know, we're talking about numbers that are six times that now. What I do hope for is that the tragedy of the Yom Kippur war led three years later to Anwar al-Sadat's epic historic visit to Jerusalem in December 1976 and then three years later to uh, the conclusion of the first peace treaty between Israel and a Muslim state the Camp David Accords but bear in mind it took six years from the Yom Kippur War for the Camp David Accords to at least raise the promise of a new of a new future in the Middle East so I'm hoping that from the seismic upheaval that I think is going to attend the crisis we see in the middle east and israel right now that something good can come of it like uh, in 1973 and i know that there are people still working to shore up and strengthen the abraham accords and i think it's remarkable 17 days in that the abraham no one is none of the muslim states that signed it have rejected it or reneged on their promise so that's entirely that's entirely promising and, and hopeful i think the thing that worries me is of course Anwar Sadat was one of these exemplars of peace. And on the other side, Itzhak Rabin was intent on implementing the the Oslo Accords, and they were both murdered by religious zealots amongst their own people. So the road to peace, even when it seems most promising, can easily be derailed. And that's that will always be my worry. What good might come out of this is that I think in most circles, but not all, We're understanding that the threat of terrorism is omnipresent and perennial, that withdrawing from Afghanistan doesn't close the book on terrorist threats to the United States or to the West, that terrorism remains a preeminent national security challenge, which it hasn't been in the past four or five years. You know, U.S. national security policy changed enormously. I mean, it was to focus on peer competitors, Russia, China. To an extent, uh, not peer competitors, but rogue states like North Korea and certainly Iran, and we thought we could just focus on them and, and neglect the threat of terrorism. That that I think has changed enormously, and that I think, unfortunately, it took a tragedy to remind us of that. But that I think is a very sober reminder of how we have to always remain vigilant against these threats.
0: Well. I've been saying about myself, every cell of my body and existence that's Jewish has been activated in the last few weeks. Like everything I know about myself or I still see it about myself. So I wanted to know what your experience has been like. And how I didn't know how much comfort it would bring me to hear from my non-Jewish friends or colleagues to know that they're standing with us or thinking about us.
1: That's you're exactly right about that. I've been so hard by how many people who aren't Jewish who have written to me from places around the world you wouldn't even expect and some of them are my former students and some aren't but this has given me tremendous satisfaction that actually education can shape people's minds and and get them to look at things differently and from a different perspective so the messages of support I've got from very surprising places so that certainly is being positive it's just that you know the relentlessness of what's on social media, for example, and often in the media kind of drowns that out, but it's very important. And I, and I know from all of my friends in Israel that they've appreciated to a degree I couldn't imagine the messages of sympathy they get from Jews elsewhere, the messages of support that they're not alone. But of course, you know, as Jews, we know we can't be alone. We can't be divided because we that's when we're the most vulnerable. And for me, too, I think you know this is exactly the time when you have to stand up and you have to be proud to be Jewish. And even if you're not going to convince people, you have to make them understand that we've survived as long as we have by adhering to our faith and to our values and principles and constantly telling my children that.
0: Powerful stuff. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise. It's, it's an honor to speak with you.
1: Sure. Well, it was really nice talking to you too. Thank you for inviting me to be on.
0: Thank you for sticking around until the end. There are lots of links in the show notes, including the link to my new song "We Are One." Please let me know if you're interested in participating in the Singing Jewish Songs campaign to bring strength and support to Jews all around the world. Please do reach out with questions, feedback, suggestions. I love hearing from you. Stay safe, be kind, see you next week.